Hey chat listeners, this is Alan. You uh, might notice that Majan's audio in this episode is pretty bad. Uh, that's because he uh, didn't have the right mic hooked up to his audio recording program. His computer does that sometimes where it just switches audio devices. Um, and the backup that we usually keep didn't sound much better anyway. So what you're hearing is the best, most salvageable version of his audio. Uh, well, that'll be fixed going forward. I know we've made this mistake before, but things happen when you're in the heat of recording and you forget to check your audio devices. Uh, but yeah, so it's going to sound a little rough. I, I, I'd like to think I noise reduced and cleaned it up enough to make it sound okay. Um, and anyways, yeah, that's, that was the only thing I wanted to come in here to say. I love you all and enjoy this really corny cold open and the episode. Bye. I've probably always been saying welcome back, but I'm, I'm making an artistic call. Just change An artistic call. That's like when you're like, hello? Van Gogh, cancel all my plans. What? Van Gogh, cancel all my plans. That's okay. You had the phone up to the wrong ear. <laughs> it's pronounced Van Gogh, actually. It's pronounced Van Gogh. <laughs> He's working on his back nine. Listeners and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, book three, Avatar, The Last Chatsbender, or Chatsbender for short. My name is Magellan, and I'm joined by my good friend, who I'd rather kiss than die. It's Alan. What is the audio equivalent of the blushing emoji? Because that's me right now. <laughs> Golly gee. I think it's the sound of you rubbing the microphone against your cheeks. That was yeah. such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. How are you uh, doing, yeah, I'm doing this well. weekend? What's up? I'm chilling, you know. Uh, I'm excited. I'm happy. Cause that, so I'm chilling, but also I'm excited. Can that be? Can I be both? Am I allowed to be both? Yeah, you're sort of an icy hot pack. <laughs> I'm sort of a to- I'm Shoto Todoroki right now. <laughs> a little bit icy hot, you know. <laughs> little good, anime reference for good. the weebs in the audience. My Hero Academia reference. Great. Speaking of anime, we're not necessarily watching anime right now although i suppose you could argue with me um and i I will argue that point this is a show where every week we watch and discuss two episodes of avatar the last airbender this week we're starting with book two earth so the second season of avatar we're watching the first two episodes season two episode one the avatar state and season two episode two the Cave of Two Lovers. We'll start with The Avatar State, which was written by a, a group of people. Elizabeth Welch Ehaz, Tim Hedrick, Aaron Ehaz, John O'Brien. It was directed by Giancarlo Volpe. Alan, what did you think of The Avatar State? I forgot to note that until we wrote it in the notes, but the fact that it was written by like five people really shows how much this episode is. When people say things like, oh, this thing is a lot. The Avatar State is a really busy episode in a good way. And I like that about it. I like that it, it sets up so many pieces that you don't even realize are being set up because it's a, it's establishes all these plots in what is looking like on the outside a regular Avatar plot. These people are going somewhere. 
and then something happens. Except, uh, now the stakes are suddenly quadrupled on Aang's side and on Zuko's side. And I, I find that really impressive that they managed to cram all of that, that big, those big ideas into one episode. Uh, what did you think? I think you make a good point that this episode tries to cover a lot of ground. It's clear that it has in its sights a few lingering questions that we probably had at the end of the first season that it wants us to not worry about anymore. And the main plot is centered around this question of, wait a minute, if Aang can go into this super powerful form, why doesn't he just do that to fight Ozai? So the episode goes about answering that. Uh, and raising the stakes on, on that topic specifically. And then the other lingering question is, well, wait a minute, why should we care that Zuko has a sister? Like, is that scary? And the answer is, it's scary. It's very... It's the most scary. Yes. I... Yes. Thank you. Ugh. <laughs> that was amazing! Yeah. Um, why don't we Why don't we start with that half of the plot? Let's start with the introduction of Azula and everything that Zuko and Iroh have to face this time around the first scene with azula is mm, you know it's just chef kiss it's so basically (laughs) Azula's on a ship right and she uh is being told by one of these guys all the 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 tides aren't gonna let us uh go to where we're trying to go we're trying to find zuko and uh i might i'm gonna put some lines in here from that but basically she asks the man oh i'm sorry captain but i do not know much about the tides Can you explain something to me? Of course, your highness. Do the tides command this ship? Uh, I'm afraid I don't understand. You said the tides would not allow us to bring the ship in. Do the tides command this ship? No, princess. And if I were to have you thrown overboard, would the tides think twice about smashing you against the rocky shore? No, princess. Well then. It's the kind of villainous speech, the introduction to a villain speech that just... It says a lot, and it's 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 her managing to like be coy and clever and also intimidating all yeah. in one. Because she says like, "Oh, if the tides don't command the ship, then why are you following the tides?" I thought I command the ship. I can kill you. She says something like, "Maybe you should worry less about the tides, who've already made up their mind about killing you, and worry more about me, who's still mulling it over." <laughs> That's so um, spooky. It's one of these classic undersold villain moments, and I I love. I think my favorite villains are villains who are exceedingly calm. Um, and one of, one of the previous shows that we watched as part of Chats was Farscape. Um, and the main antagonist for much of Farscape is this character, Scorpius, whose sort of big selling point as a villain is that he's far calmer than any other character on that show. Like, completely unflappable, and also gives speeches like this to underlings, where the tenor of it is essentially... Listen, why are you disobeying me? Seriously, ask yourself, why are you doing it? I could kill you. I don't care about killing you. So what are we doing here? <laughs> like, just stop wasting, essentially, stop wasting my time pretending like I'm not the biggest badass in the whole entire world. And it, it's fantastic that we have a character like that in Avatar right now. And honestly, it's fantastic that that character is female, to be perfectly fair. Because yes. we... Not only have we not had that many strong, specific female characters in the main cast of the show, we definitely haven't seen any characters like that on the the antagonist side. Right. It's been exclusively uh, Iroh, Zuko, and Ozai so far. And Zhao. And Zhao, true. Sorry. Mm, Sorry. (laughs) R.I.P. All right. Spirit World R.I.P. Yeah. 
Azula is amazing for a lot of reasons, though. Yeah. So basically, we're gonna learn over time why she. I mean, it's I. You can pretty much assume why she is so self confident. It's because she was the child that was loved, and 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 because she can bend electricity. (laughs) She's an electric. She's a lightning bender. Yes, it's so cool. Let's not not go too far before we mention that she can bend electricity. Electricity is just fire, fam. She's just ch- basically, yeah. That's how they explain it later. Is that it's just fire it's channeled just differently? Fire, yeah. But it's it's lightning, and she has ugh, like the scene where she lightning bends for the first time is great too because she's on this ship like doing it, and she does this amazing maneuver, and then there's these like three uh, old women sitting like cross-legged watching her, and they're like most perfect one hair out of place. And then Azula like has a hair go in front of her, which is kind of just like the like something about your femininity is getting in the way of you being a badass. Mm, interesting. Uh, but she moves it away and then like uses that power and then just does it perfectly. And they're like, ah, good. Like she's just immediately defining herself as I can do things that other firebenders can't do, and I can do everything. That, and people like me. And Zuko can't do any of these things. He is incompetent compared to me and useless. Yeah. And also, she will not rest on her laurels. She's better than everybody, which means she only has herself to compete with. Right. Uh, and she uh, she basically finds Zuko and pulls the ultimate horrible sibling move in this episode. And it's beyond sad. It like shatters my heart that Zuko is so eager to believe her because she finds Zuko and she tells him, oh, dad wants you to come back. And he's like, wait, this is awesome. Really? She's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Do it. You should come back. Like, why would he go to the effort to kick you out if he didn't plan on bringing you back at some point? She's like, he's like, oh, maybe she's right. Maybe he, like, he says to Ira later, like, fathers realize how important family is to him. He cares about me. And you're like, no, no, Zuko, no, don't. <laughs> and poor Iroh has to tell him, no, bud. My Your brother dad really does hate you. My brother is the worst. He's a bad man who will not love you the way that I can love you as a father figure. Me, your dad, your true dad. Me, your true dad. And I love you so much that even when you call me lazy, mistrustful, and jealous, I'll still walk with you into a trap because uh. I need to always be there to save you that yeah the way iroh handles all of that is so beautiful and so sad because they get onto the, they like walk onto the ship this all happens really fast too which i like like this this plot like uh gallops right along and yeah I, d- I did not think that they would run into azula that quickly this soon well uh i mean the reason they run into azula immediately is because the result of this scene is what becomes their season arc so they have to like have the scene now so that the rest right. of the season can be the nomad's journey of Zuko and Iroh. Ugh, yum. So basically, they get onto the ship, and Azula's, like, smiling, waiting to, like, accept her brother and her uncle. Yay, everything's good. And then one dude on the ship is just an idiot, and he's like, Azula, like, we're taking, like, what are we going to do with the prisoners or something? She's like, she has that look where she's like, oh, like, why did, no! <laughs> she looks worried for a second. But she improvises and it goes, no, all right, that's it. We're kicking them. We're killing them right now. <laughs> we're going to take them. <laughs> no more, no more subtlety. We're just going to take them out. And uh, Iroh defends Zuko. And then he's like yelling for Zuko to get away. And then they manage to escape just barely. He does this cool move where he channels her electricity through his own body. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty sick. 
so lightning bending the sort of like positive of it is it's very fast and hurts arguably probably hurts more than fire does but it can be channeled through things the way that lightning can like fire can't be channeled through things Hmm. but Mm -hmm. so that that's kind of like us being introduced to that mechanic of lightning bending so uh he does that and then they get away and amazing couple of scenes where they're like running and talking to each other and then finally they're by this river and they're like well looks like we're nomads and uh they're like where are we gonna go so basically yeah at this point all that happens in the in this episode with them is they decide all right we're gonna start running for the rest of our lives or until we figure something out we're by this river let's change our look so that people can't recognize us that's the only way we're gonna fit in and they cut their hair in this scene that is just ah it's like beautiful there's just like an art to it it's like this scene and all the stuff with azula feels like it's on another level that the show has never approached before and i'm having trouble articulating why i like this haircutting scene so much it i mean it's it's pure symbolic drama there yeah they can communicate to us that these they're literally cutting ties with their heritage without saying that but I, i don't know i mean so did they do it? Was it a symbolic gesture? Did they do it to disguise themselves? Like what? What was the goal there? It was both to to say like we're going to keep fighting. We're not going to stop being and existing. Like we're not going to give ourselves up to them. And also, yes, we're cutting ties, and we need to look different. It was also a practical thing of like we need to look different. We can't keep these like symbols of our our heritage anymore because they tied their hair up as like a heritage like royalty does that kind of thing. Okay, I can buy that. Also. There is a trivia about this part that I have to read to you, but I'm not going to read to you right now because it's just, it's everything. It like, it like puts a nice bow on that scene. Mm. But yeah, Zuko cuts his majestic ponytail off and is basically bald. And then it's funny because next week he already has hair back. Yeah. And and Iroh just looks better. Iroh just has a better look now. It's almost like the braid had all of his age in it and he like acts 20 years younger Mm -hmm. once he cuts it off. A lot more open shirts. After after that goes, yeah, I really got his dad bod. Rocks for sure. that dad bod, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Granddad bod Granddad or uncle bod, bod yeah. <laughs> uncle bod. Uncle That's uncle bod trend. and I were fishing down by the creek. What? Uh, are there any other parts from the Zuko plot that you uh, you really liked? I just really I I like that they are showing us that the season is going to have Zuko and Iroh consistently as this kind of two hander um, that we can return to in our in our B plots, and that they're setting them up to have a balance of levity and gravity. Because at the right. beginning of this episode, you know their introduction is is kind of funny, um, but then by the end of it, they are having this almost Greek tragedy moment of having to relinquish their ties to nobility in order to continue to flee and continue to stay alive. Um, and it seems like they've, they've had to give up everything that they've fought to regain just to hold on to their lives. Um, and so it, it's really a deeply tragic moment, but they're with each other and they have each other, they love each other and they're going to have fun jokey times. So I, I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, it's a pretty light journey, as we see in the second episode, like the first leg of it, and they get to have their own development. Because as you, two things in your notes that I really like are a, uh, Zuko gets everything he wants to realize that he doesn't want it. Right. Literally, they tell him, "Hey, you get to, you're, you can have your dad's love back." He's like, "Well, that's pretty cool." Oh, I don't want that at all, do I? And then also, uh, yeah, just all of the stuff about the cutting the hair and all of that is 
it's it's amazing and it's it's just it's like setting up such a nice season plot it's like i i really really appreciate this script's ability to lay out possibility if that makes sense it's it's really a, it's a masterful storytelling move to say this character has been driving at a certain goal for an entire season rather than string along that goal and put in more roadblocks to it we're going to let that character think they've achieved their goal see how that changes them then totally pull the rug out from under them and set them back to square one and so now zuko's at this place where he doesn't know up from down anymore he doesn't know what to want he doesn't know how to get it he knows that he resents the avatar he knows that he wants his honor back but at this point the fact that azul is there and that she's on the hunt for them means that ozai has no intention of bringing them back and, exactly. And so for Zuko, what is there in the world now that he can call his own? It's his body, it's his skills as a fighter, and it is his uncle. Those are those are like the only things he has left to hold very close. And like speaking of, there's like some good fight scenes where he's like running away from Azula's people and he like conjures up fire daggers, which is such a cool Zuko move of like making weapons out of elements instead of like this isn't this is a show that is influenced by martial arts and weapons based martial arts and all of that stuff but most people don't have weapons because mm-hmm. they just bend right but zuko flips that around and is like no i can make weapons out of my bending like i can just let's just do that in, instead mm-hmm. and yeah and he mulans his hair and then they're they're going on their adventure <laughs> so um spe- <laughs> that's whenever someone cuts their hair for an important reason it's called mulan whenever you go to the barber you say give me, yeah, can I give me the mulan, mulan? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of people getting the thing they want and then realizing they don't want it, it's time to talk about the Avatar state, my dude. Yeah, I I can only imagine how much we're going to get out of this part because that B plot was so rich. Right. This plot, while fascinating and like setting up even more big season long stuff, uh, it's still it's just like well, this still feels a little bit self contained until the ending right like the idea that this guy is trying to induce the avatar thing so basically the episode actually starts with ang having a really spooky symbolic dream where the avatar state version of himself is like chasing him through the sky and katara and zuko like come up to him in the sky while he's on appa and like tell him that he's disappointing them that he's failed them so we know at this point that ang has doubts about how he has been doing in his quest so far it's, he doesn't feel like he's done well. it's scary it's it's a really dark way to start a season with a just spooky nightmare instead of like oh the adventure the gang's back together it's like no everything's yeah. really messed up o- in this kid's head overwhelming right overwhelming self-doubt and yeah. fear of his own powers exactly because he knows he's he's finally after turning into the water beast realizes how incredibly powerful he can be if he harnesses the powers in the right way and how that can hurt people and that's like getting back to him being afraid to use firebending he is coming to not coming to grips but like coming to fear his power like you said and just kind of like understanding the weapon that he contains in him and we're still at the northern uh water uh village area whatever that was called the tribe and again it's like hey paku's cool i guess okay he's gonna like say nice things about katara being a master waterbender now apparently we had time to train in between the seasons and uh, Sokka had time to cut the sleeves on his shirts because it's getting hot out. <laughs> <laughs> I did not notice that until uh, they until there was like certain shots. Where I was like, wait a minute, his his sleeves look different. <gasps> it's because they're not there. Goodness gracious! That for now is the closest thing to a summer outfit. 
and also the uh fantastic scene is that in this episode actually no it's in the second one where they're swimming yeah that's the generally there's more there's more male shirtlessness over for absoluteness than than what we've seen so far uh they get some scrolls too just a box of scrolls it's a box of scrolls i got from scroll depot yeah um paku says basically that katara is ang's master we didn't talk about how swiftly he he uh granted that title to katara you'd think that the rank of master i mean i know she's not really a master probably but you'd think the rank of master was more like closely guarded than that i don't know well the but like nobody lives in the Southern Water Tribe. She's the okay. She's the only the only waterbender in the Southern Water Tribe. True. The best waterbender in the Northern Water Tribe is Paku, and he gave that to her. So number one gave it to number two. Basically, is all that was. Uh, it's not like there's a million people out there, and I chose you. It's just like you were the second best, and now I'm gonna let you have the title. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess the water, the people of the Water Tribe don't have that many benders to their name. Exactly. Um, and yeah, yeah it's so. sorry. It, it it bugs me that Paku got is fine. Like he's an okay guy now, for some reason. I just feel like he, he didn't I think, he didn't get punished enough for being such a sexist monster. Yeah, but he's whatever. gonna keep his position of power and not lose any of that clout that he has in that country. Yeah, uh, I think it's mostly just because we like they handled that plot and it's considered handled, but there still should be some sort of ramification for how terrible he was. But also, there was time passed between these seasons, so maybe they just got used to each other after a while. Yeah. And there's enough amicability between, like, at least him and Katara that she isn't mad at him for existing like she should have been at the beginning. Yeah. So they leave. And where do they... What's the whole... Oh, they're... So Avatar Cycle has to learn water, then earth, then... uh, Or air, water, earth, and fire. So now he has to learn earth, which means it's time to go back to Boomy. And I knew this question was going to come up. The question of why didn't he learn from Boomy when he was there? Yeah. It is partly the Avatar Cycle. Like, you have to learn these in a certain order. Like uh jong jong said also when we were in kiyoshi kiyoshi not kiyoshi when we were in omashu ang didn't know what he was doing he didn't have a quest yet oh you're right remember the winter solstice was like a couple episodes later or whatever the the solstice you're right that's true you're right ang was just hanging out so then he left and now he has to go back which is like immediately oh man we're just gonna go back to like this world is huge but we're already returning to locations from before which in this episode you're like that's kind of dull. All right, I I kind of like it as a concept, and maybe it's because I've already seen the end of the second episode, and I know that that's that's not as simple as it first seemed. Yeah, but there's something appealing about the idea of we're going to do a first season where we visit all these places, and then in the second season we're going to backtrack a little bit to the places we've already seen, but see them in in a new context. I think that's a fun way to structure the show and it's a little bit subversive of the format right well it reminds us that a the world isn't that big and that b there is more to explore in these spaces than we did in our cursory little adventures before right it just makes sense like if if you've made this cool king character that ang knows and is a master of earthbending then go back and show us more of that guy you don't need to invent a whole new person right that city is still just as important as it was in the first season it's just now we have a different reason to be there yeah so we're going to hang out with Boomy and everything's going to be good and fun, except that's, we'll talk about it. Basically, on the way there, they go to a Earth Kingdom base, which is just sort of like an interim, hey, we are going to escort you to Omashu because people don't just go to Omashu by themselves. And at this base, we have an old guy who doesn't get, I don't think he gets a name in this episode. 
He's just like the leader of this place. Yeah. He's a general of some kind. Yeah. I have, there is a name for that character. I can probably find it while I talk. But basically, he's voiced by Daniel Day Kim, who was amazing on Lost and is a great voice actor who's been in a lot of stuff, actually. And he tells Aang that that great moment where Aang is like, oh, man, like, I have to get pre- prepared to fight the Fire Lord. He goes, Avatar, you're ready to face the Fire Lord now. What? And he's like, what? But I'm six. I still have to eat my baba, eat my wawa. And the guy's like, nope, you can do that thing where your eyes turn white, right? And he's like, you mean the avatar state? And he's like, yeah, what if you did that? Except all the time and just killed the Fire Lord in like two seconds. And to me, General Fong, by the way, is this character's name. I found it. Uh, General Fong is like what the fan base must have been talking about in season one. Yeah. Which is like, if he can do uh, the Avatar state, why doesn't he just do it all the time and win? And the show has to have a character do that and think, well, if he can't activate it himself yet, yet, then we have to induce it. And we get this really fun montage of all the different ways that they're trying to induce it. They give him a tea that's incredibly high in caffeine and spirit juice. Yeah. And he, that part's pretty um, funny where he's like, Am I talking to Yeah. A guy mixes together all four elements, splashes it on Aang, and he says, This is just mine. Probably my favorite joke of the episode. That, I, I think I referenced that line last season where I was like, somebody at some point mixes the elements physically and makes mud, which is just hilarious. Uh, and again, this like this half of the plot had so many weirdly memorable parts to me, like line deliveries specifically. There's that one, there's the line from Roku later, and then there's like the guy saying, you can turn the Avatar State on right now. You could kill the Fire Lord right now or defeat the Fire Lord. And that all those lines for me just like stuck because season two is my favorite season. I, I really appreciated your point earlier taking this episode as a response to what must have been fan discussion or just general uh, kind of min-maxing plot-driven discussion about Aang and his powers. That question of if he can become, you know, Super Saiyan level powerful, why doesn't he just do it? And then the show says, okay, you want him to do that? You, you want, here, this is what it's like. He, Here's what it's like. He hates it. it he's <laughs> full of rage and pain. It's awful. It's a torturous experience. He has no control. He has no control at all. Uh, he terrifies his friends and his loved ones. And you know and what? Just to add that. on to it, if he gets <laughs> killed in this state, then the Avatar's over. The show is over. We ended the show. Can we do our fun adventure story now? Can you stop asking us to like break down our mechanics? Because this is what happens when you do that. <laughs> it is... It really, like, this season in general really is, hey, the first season set up all these fun, like, little mysteries and big ideas. We're going to, like, knock all those pins the heck down and then just tell our own story. And that is why it's my favorite season. Because they just keep picking up these ideas and then saying, no, 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 stop thinking of it like that. You are misinterpreting this this plot. And we have more, we have different things to tell you. Basically, like you said, he endangers Katara because they have that nice conversation on the balcony where she says, it is scary to see you. It is horrifying to watch you like just do this thing that you can't control and like hurt people and do all this powerful bending and he says i understand that and then he has the shirtless conversation with sokka in the bunk beds mm-hmm. where uh sokka is basically saying like ah oh, do whatever you want if it works it works right and my favorite line of this whole plot is basically at first when he's talking to katara and saying i don't like maybe i should just learn from this guy she's like why do you want to use the avatar state now he says i don't have time to do this the right way something about that line feels very real and painful to me like it, i don't know why it relates to me but there's just something 
something in there, some magic in the idea of like, I'm being realistic. I don't have time to do this the right way. Yeah. Like, I know how this is supposed to work. I can't spend months training and do this in time and then fight a bad guy and kill and decide if I'm going to take his life or not. It, I have. I want to just get, I need to just get this like rushed, expedited form. It speaks to the incredible stress that Aang is being put under because he's being asked to save the world by becoming a complete master of everything. And he has to do right. it as fast as possible. And there's a specific way in which he has to do things for the order to work. But also, by the way, you've got to do each step in the span of a week or a couple weeks. Right. So finally, the way that General Fang gets him to do it is he threatens Katara and he says, Aang, I'm going to kill your best friend <laughs> if you don't do, do Avatar say right this second. I'm going to dunk like, her in the sand. <laughs> in the in the saw, the sand sauce. And he's like, no, I just so sad to watch him be like i can't and the guy's like you have to and he's like i cannot it doesn't work like this <laughs> your whole plan relied on this working and it will not work except uh, uh, right at the last second he drowns he theoretically drowns her in the sand and it works and the guy is so happy he says yes i've done it yes this is it and gets this big head where he he's this kind of character where he I think the reason he wants Aang to go Avatar State so badly is because he gets to say that he did it. Yeah. He will be go down, going down in history as the guy that got the Avatar to defeat the Fire Lord. Right. right. And instead of it being from the help of his friends and all of these teachers, it's from this one dude. That's like exciting hubris in a way. He wants to use Aang as a bomb, basically. Right. He's like, oh, if like I did the research, if this works, then we just figured it out. We, we saved the day. Yay, right? That's a good idea. With no thought about the moral implications of it. Which it makes him like a great villain in a way, uh, like a kind of flawed, mistaken person who doesn't know what he's doing. And he says like, oh, no, Aang, it's fine. She's right here. But of course, you can't talk to the Avatar state. You, that doesn't work, you big dummy. I was just thinking like, okay, let's say this worked. Let's say Aang could even talk to them. You have to keep him in the Avatar state for like five hours as they take a boat to the Fire Nation capital, <laughs> fight his way to there, and then fight Ozai. Like, this plan conceptually makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, or get him to in- to do it uh, on the way, like, when he gets there. None of it, none of it, like, lines up. It's just kind of like he saw the end goal and wanted to get there and didn't think about the consequences. So Aang, in the Avatar state, uh, gets stopped by Roku, who says, Aang, son... <laughs> Listen, like, but dad, I'm going to kill everyone. I need to add more big stakes. Come ride my stakes, dragon. It's time you learned. Ooh, the line. This is something, again, just like, oh, these magical lines. It's time you learn. Like, it is time you figure out the whole thing that's going on. Yeah. We're going to peel back the current even more and answer one more big question, which is what happens when you're in the Avatar state? Yeah. He says, basically, hey, you know how there's like your connection to all these cool avatars and we get this great shot of all the different avatars like roku and the last waterbender and kiyoshi and the last there was a female airbender in there which was cool he says hey if you die in the avatar state all of us die forever and the cycle ends and you're dead and every one of us dies and there's no more avatar don't please don't it'll be all your fault all right now bye bye keep keep saving the world (laughs) and so he's like well okay we can't do this we're out of here. Bye, Earth people. And I, I love he knocks out the general and then without missing a beat, they turn to the soldiers and they say, all right, so can we go? And they go, yep. Yeah, let's go. 
<laughs> they think this guy is just as bonkers as as the gang does. Right. They none of them were like on his side. They're like, yeah. Oh, please, thank you. Whew. Did it. Oh, really right. He's sleeping that. for a little while. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Let's bounce. And yeah, he just he he. They go on to their next adventure, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Um, it's it's just it's such an amazing episode. I I was like more impressed with it this time than I ever have been watching it's this. Show. Really exciting opening to a season for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to read some of the trivia for this one? Like I mentioned earlier, I do want you to do that. All right. This is my maybe my favorite trivia so far. All this like batch. This is the first episode where Sokka's shirt is sleeveless. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is the first episode where Aang is seen earthbending, albeit in the Avatar state. Oh. Hmm. About that. In this episode, Aang performs a similar move with airbending that he used to raise himself with water in the Avatar Returns. That's just visual references. This episode had four writers involved in the writing process, which is more than any other episode had until an episode later in this season. This is the first episode where Katara is considered an official master of waterbending, following her training of the art at the North Pole. Sure. In the scene... Oh, this is awesome. In the scene where Azula's captain ship... Our ship captain accidentally... That, sorry, that's... sorry. I, I'm just really... I, I didn't mean to underplay Katara earlier. It's, like, really impressive that she's a master of waterbending. I feel like we we could say more about that. You know what I mean? Like, Katara as a character is... She's just incredibly powerful and incredibly humble. Um, and she doesn't necessarily always get the, the space on the show that she deserves. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Katara's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, like I said, she's the, she becomes the new number one in this in this sort of yeah. scenario. Yeah. And it's great that he has her as a friend and as a teacher. I like that about her. Mm-hmm. Um, in the scene where Azula's ship captain accidentally reveals that Zuko and Iroh are prisoners, the creators originally planned on Azula vaporizing the man on the spot, Whoa. but later decided that was a little harsh. <laughs> So clearly they are in, they like intend for Azula to be even more ruthless yeah, but they she's keep like a Sith. pulling back. They the her guards by the way looked different than the other Fire Nation guards. They looked like the red guards from the end of Return of the Jedi. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't bit. know what those guys are called. I think yeah, they just called them just, she has guards. better guards. I think you're right. Uh in the beginning of the episode Paku's wearing different clothing due to warmer climate. That's great. Sure. Sleeves. Uh, this next one is kind of unnecessary. The statues that Kyoshi earthbends are similar to the statues used by the Earth King's royal guards. Yes, the the, the Earth Kingdom all use the same statues. Is basically what that's saying. Huh. This is the second of three episodes in the series to have a name that starts with the Avatar. We have the Avatar Returns and uh, an episode from later <laughs> are the other okay. two. Here we go. Zuko and Iroh cutting their hair parallels the story of Buddha, who, when starting his journey of self-discovery and enlightenment, cut off his hair be- beside a river. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's just that. And here is my new favorite piece of trivia. The writing on Zuko's knife reads, and I cannot pronounce this because it's not English, and it means never give up without a fight. Whoa. Yes. They, like, highlight it like you should know what it says. And I'm like, I can't read this language. I'm sorry. What language, what language is it in? I think it's Chinese. Huh. I didn't want to say that and be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Chinese. That is going to do it for our discussion of the Avatar State. We're now going to turn it over to the airbag, and then we'll be right back to discuss the Cave of Two Lovers. Hello, Chatspender listeners. It's time to get funky with the airbag for episode 12 of The Last Chatspender. I'm going to read your feedback, and I'm going to respond to it. And that's what's going to happen. Let's start off with Twitter, where we got some memos from our buddy Old As Your Omens. He says, a note to Alan... You mentioned Zuko's mean sister when we only met her for like a second in S1E13. She has one line. She's not here yet. Uh, she's 
in the frame. And this is so... You're very pedantic, Omens, and I like that about you. You're very pedantic. Magellan, you've not seen the entire series, and honestly, yes, it knows what it wants to be early on, but by nature of the plot, it has to get denser and more weighter as the series goes on. So yes, you're right, with one caveat. I already forgot what she's referring to. The show is super high quality and understands its audience as a mature block of people, but there are still bad episodes. So she actually ranked season one herself, ranking her lowlights as The Great Divide, The Fortune Teller, Imprisoned, and Bato, I guess, because she doesn't remember it. Her fine episodes are Jet, I hate it, but you need to watch it, at least the beginning for later arcs, and Smellerby 2020. I don't remember the Avatar Returns at all, but I'll take your word for it, and the Northern Air Temple. Her highlights are two-parters counted as one. So, the Southern Air Temple for history, the King of Omashu for Bumi, even though the plot is bad, the Warriors of Kyoshi for Suki, the actual light of my life, Winter Solstice as a whole, but part two is an essential plot thing, the Waterbending Scroll, because she genuinely loves it as a one-off, and the Blue Spirit. And then her essentials are the Boy in the Iceberg, the Storm, the Waterbending Master, and the Siege of the North. And the one she's leaving out because she doesn't know how she feels about it is the deserter because nobody really remembers the deserter. But Jong Jong is awesome. Dax actually sent us a tweet and an email. He first tweeted at us, Anctopus, watched them last night. Where do I start? Which was referring to my tweet where I was saying, I can't decide which thumbnail to use for the episode. And as y'all can see, I chose the cutest one. But I almost chose the Anctopus, which was very funny. And it was a shot from the second episode, I believe. On to Dax's email, which he sent to us over at chatspot at gmail.com. I'm going to have to do the thing where I read pieces of it because Dax went on a fun little rant, mostly about his girl Azula. Um, Greetings, Al Magellan. It's 92 degrees and summer is just getting started. Everyone is crying about the heat, but I was raised in the desert, so I'm just like, what a nice day. How's the weather there? It is very humid in on the East Coast where we are. Like, so humid all the time. Uh, I work at a pharmacy with a drive-thru, and opening the window feels like you are opening a furnace. On to this week's episode, or rather episode, because really only the first one mattered. This is, again, Dax just being Team Azula all the way, already. In the Avatar State, we start with Aang and... In the Avatar State, we start out with Aang having PTSD for when he was Big Guppy, but Katara is there to comfort him. May Whitman, such a soothing presence, don't you think? Yes. In a classic trope scene where an elder gives youngsters tools as they depart... Katara gets hippie juice, I mean, magic water. Aang gets rolling paper, I mean, scrolls, and Sokka gets the shaft. That is, he gets to get the heck out of the way. Uncle is having a much-deserved spa day. Enjoy, my friend, you've been through a lot. Meanwhile, ponytail emo boy, I mean, Prince Zuko, is like, my daddy and I are never getting back together. Seems book two is going to be more of the same fun-filled avatar. Wait, who's this princess? Azula arrives. She's so sweet, so nice, so caring, so gentle, so lovely. She gives a caring pep talk to some Fire Nation soldiers and thoughtful mentoring. That was so understanding. I think this is what love at first sight feels like. I feel like I'm, I'm intruding on Dax's love life right now. Some wannabe Earth Nation general is telling Aang he needs to man up, but Aang's like, I don't wanna. Anyways, back to Princess Beautiful. I mean, Princess Azula. She's practicing bending lightning. How is this possible? It's not one of the elements, is it? Fire is chemical, lightning is electrical. Obviously, it's because she's a badass. Ah, my sweetness. Uncle wakes up because he sends it miles away because he knows what's up. Uncle, you playa. Ah, I think, I mean, lightning and fire are both just energy. But then you're getting into like, well, everything is energy, isn't it? They do definitely talk about lightning bending more as she becomes a bigger deal. So I'm not going to spoil any of that. Aang is like, teach me to man up. And then they do a bunch of stuff. Get back to my future wife. She's waiting for Uncle and Zuzu like a cool queen and gives the boys good news. 
Guitars giving Aang encouraging words. Oh, May Whitman, sorry. Great Delisle's my new boo. Oh, no. The boys do some emo talking, and then there's some fighting. As the Earth Nation goes all Agent Smith on Aang, while Uncle and Zuzu are being offered a free ride home by Azul, who I'm sure was going out of her way to be nice. Zuzu's got to throw a temper tantrum and be like, cash me. Dax, I'm not going to read your memes. <laughs> so he attacks her, only to be slapped by my queen. Just about that she's about to go all medieval on his ass. Uncle interrupts and kicks her off the boat. Uncle, you vile old fool, I'll never forgive you. And gets spiritual. The boys cut off their man buns. Uh, is this even a B-plot anymore? Do we care? Azula loops out the wanted poster, lays down the law. There's a new sheriff in town and y'all better get used to it. What a great way to start off book two. Unfortunately, in the second episode, Aang and the gang meet hippie Scooby gang peeps and do cave-dwelling stuff that Azul isn't even in. So we can just skip this one. Nothing happens. Off to a good start. I can't wait to see the further adventures of Azula in this awesome show. I guess those other characters can show up if they have to, if they behave themselves. Quote of the week, almost isn't good enough. From Princess Azula with a heart emoji at the end. Uh, Dax, Dax, I feel like I've learned your type. And that is to say, uh, girls who can crush you (laughs) uh, with their fingertips. And that's cool. And I respect that a lot. Um, Yeah, I I sort of, that's really fun. It's it's a really a testament to the quality of the character work on the show that people can fall in love with people like Suki and Azula from just mo- moments of knowing them and know that we love them. And Azula in particular is probably my, like one of my favorite characters on the show. We actually still haven't met my favorite favorite, but uh, we'll meet them this season, I believe. Um, y'all who have seen the show, you can take your guesses and leave your guesses in the Twitter DMs over at ChatsPod on Twitter. And if you want to email me questions about the show or feedback that you want me to read on the airbag, send that over to chatspot.gmail.com. Now, after you've gone and done that, come back to this episode and enjoy our discussion of The Cave of Two Lovers. Welcome back to The Last Chatspender. The second episode we watched this week was Season 2, Episode 2, The Cave of Two Lovers, which was written by Joshua Hamilton and directed by Lauren McMullen. Alan, what did you think of The Cave of Two Lovers? This is one I feel... I am i don't know how I, we should discuss this because it's like... It's a good episode for sure. Very charming. Some of my favorite moments of the show. Great humor. And then also... The, they flush out the relationship between Katara and Aang in this episode in a way that I really liked. And I was impressed with how well it was handled. I didn't expect it to be this to, to like feel this good and resonate this much with me but i liked their relationship in this episode and and the backstory and the stuff that we learn about the world um but it's it's it manages to still stay pretty small in scale like it isn't after last week it isn't really a big epic episode until the final shot where it gets very big capital v b very big <laughs> what did you think about it? pretty solid character development that I didn't expect to happen this early in the season. The Ang Katara stuff, listen, I'll admit it was a tough week for uh, us Zutara shippers out there. Mm-hmm. It was really, really, a, really a challenging go. As it should but, be. But I think I think we'll be okay. To the three people who, like two people who voted Zukara for their favorite heterosexual last airbender ship on our uh, Twitter poll, fight me. Do, I challenge you to an Agni Kai. To those same people, I challenge you to a calming cup of jasmine tea mm-hmm. with me. Thank you. 
Thank you. <laughs> ugh, you're, ugh, ugh. It's fine. Let's. Yeah. Let, why don't Why don't we start there? Why don't we Why don't we cover Ankatara? So the the main thrust of this episode is that they're trying to get to Omashu so that they can meet up with King Bumi and learn earthbending. Aang and his friends run into a group of Avatar hippies. Don't fall in love with the traveling girl. She'll leave you broken, broken home. Hey, river people. We're not river people. You're not? Well, then what kind of people are you? Just people. Aren't we all, brother? Their names are Chong and Lily are the two main ones. And then Moku is my favorite. He's the guy who wears pink and has flowers. They're just they're just hippies. They're just here to have fun. And I love them. And Chong has an amazing, amazing voice. It really is no deeper than the fact that they're hippies. And they sing really nice songs sometimes. Like actually really nice songs. I think these are good singers who sing well. I mean, like they're not, but they're not professional. They're just they just happen to be people who have like really a really good grasping of like voice and rhythm and uh, lyrics. Like they're really good. No, no BS, no nonsense. Like these songs are great. That's like a thing that the fan base has latched onto because, I mean, the Secret Tunnel song. We got to talk about it. It's the most famous song in Avatar. Everyone knows it. If you look up Secret Tunnel cover on YouTube, a ton of people like this song. Forbidden from one another, a war divides their people, and a mountain divides them apart. Built a path to be together. Yeah, I forget the next couple lines, but uh, then it goes. Secret tunnel, secret tunnel, through the mountain. Secret, 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 secret tunnel, yeah. And they have that one, and then what I thought was smart was like, they use that beat for every song that they sing, where it's just like, dun, 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 for every song, and they're all good. Yeah, they keep returning to it, and it's fun. And then it has a... And we can just cut to this. It has an actual purpose in the plot. That's true. When at the very end, Sokka and the hippies have been separated from Aang and Katara. Um, and they're about to be attacked by these cave badgers, who it turns out earthbenders learned earthbending from. Whatever. Cool. Huh. Um, piece of lore. We can talk about that in just a moment. And Sokka kind of falls on a on a musical instrument, and it's a really nice touch where Sokka tries to start singing, and he's an okay singer, but he's only playing one note on the instrument. Like, he only knows how to play one thing. There's very serious attention being paid to making sure that the music fits with the characterization, that it, it feels natural to what you would expect this person's skill level to be. These hippies also represent a fun sort of comedy that this show doesn't do very often, which is the kind of quick, almost satirical deadpan. Well, sounds like you're headed to Omashu. There's an old story about a secret pass right through the mountains. Is this real or a legend? Oh, it's a real legend. 
So are you guys going to come to Omashu with us? Nope. Okay. Thanks for everything, Moku. That's what they are. They're just here to be charming and entertaining and, and kind of save the day in the end. <laughs> I want to talk about the Ankatara stuff. Basically, the idea is there's this cave that they have to cut through to get to Omashu because going around it is dangerous. We get a smash cut to... Thanks for the help, but Appa hates going underground. And we need to do whatever makes Appa most comfortable. Secret love cave, let's go. Appa ends up getting cabin fever. He ends up feeling super claustrophobic and causes a cave-in that splits the group in half. And Ang and Katara discover the story of this cave. Part of it is that earthbenders were taught earthbending by these animals. So let we can pause there. What do you think of that as a plot development? I do not like the learning how people learn to bend, but this show and Korra both posit different origin stories. Like There are multiple different origin stories for bending. And I like that idea, which is nobody actually knows what it is, but we all kind of assumed this was what it was. Like Whether or not it's this, where different animals taught them bending, or it came from the sky, or whatever the other ones are that come in, in like, you know, the end of season three, or like season four of Korra, whatever. I The one that's just, hey, animals taught us it, that kind of works for me, the, the best out of these, if we're going to have an answer. Um, I didn't need an answer, but if it's like, hey, the moles taught us this, the birds taught us airbending, you know, that kind of thing, I'll take it. I understand people interacted with animals in the early days. It ultimately doesn't feel like it matters one way or the other. It's not a question that we need answered. Exactly. Yeah, but it is it, it is cool that animals can bend. Right. They're not just doing their animal thing that is considered bending for them. The idea of this cave is, is in order to escape it, you have to trust in love. What could that mean? Who knows? Well, we do trust in love. Katara has an idea, a crazy <laughs> idea that just might work. Never mind. It's too crazy. Katara, what is it? I was thinking... The curse says we'll be trapped in here forever unless we trust in love. Right? And here it says love is brightest in the dark and has a picture of them kissing. Where are you going with this? Well, what if we kissed? Us kissing? See, it was a crazy idea. Us kissing. It's so good that this is Katara's idea and not Aang's. Yes. Because she's the one who's like, you can imagine a guy in like a nerdy comedy being like, oh, I guess the only way we're going to figure our way out is if we kiss. Oh, I guess we have to kiss. It's like a Freaks and Geeks plot or something. But Katara is the one who's like, maybe if we kissed it would work out. Would that be a good idea? And like, not only A, the fact that she says it, B, the fact that it works. <laughs> it's so, ah, oh, it's precious. It is, and it, it flips is really the gender precious. expectation of that in a in a way that I really like. Yeah, yeah, especially since the whole episode is is setting you up to think, oh, Aang's got this big crush on Katara from the very beginning when she's like, you know, teaching him how to miniature golf with water bending, like holding him by the shoulders and being like, show me the octopus form, and Aang's like, oh, Katara. From the very beginning, this episode is setting you up to think, all right, what's the move that Aang is gonna make? 
And then, no, Katara's the one who... Makes the move. Makes the move. And it's great. And she does it in, in a very kind of mature, reasonable, but also blushy way that, that's really endearing and feels very honest. That's why it's a bit of a fart to that joke that they go like... Us kissing. What was I thinking? Can you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't want to kiss you. Oh, well, I didn't realize it was such a horrible option. Sorry I suggested it. No, no, I mean, if it was a choice between kissing you and dying... Ah! What? I'm saying I would rather kiss you than die. That's a compliment. Well, I'm not sure which I would rather do. What is wrong with me? But then, uh uh-oh, the lights went out. What are we going to do? Well, I guess there's nothing left to do but kiss. And man... It's season two, episode two, and our main will they want the couple already will. They just will. Right. It's one of the best things about Farscape is that the two main characters are in love with each other and it's not a question for too long. Like they make it a question later, but very early on, they like do the nasty. And from there on, it's just like, all right, now we're dating. Now we're a cu- it's we're we love each other. It's great. Mm-hmm. And this is a kid's show where it's just like, hey, if the if the uh Attraction is mutual. It's just going to work out. It just does. Right. And it, it, it still feels very innocent. The, yeah. The cinematography here is, if I can use that word, is really clever. That the kiss happens just as the lights are fading out. So that we don't we don't have to, like, make preteen characters kiss on screen and watch this happen and have some kind of dramatic ooh oh my goodness it's just listen they like each other and now they both know that they like each other and it's a thing that we can just accept it doesn't have to happen with all this pomp and circumstance it's just the lights went out it's a thing that's understood that's under the surface the lights are back on and the rest of the world has no idea it happened but Ang and Katara know and they're always going to know that they deeply, deeply care about each other. It's a really responsible, respectful way to handle that relationship and make the audience feel that you're addressing it without twisting us around um, and wasting our time. Because the, the the joke of like us kissing, us kissing that they do for like a minute is something that other shows would do for a season or yeah. two seasons. They do forever. This thing they of, wouldn't do it. They wouldn't even constantly. Yeah, this thing of what? I'd rather I uh, I'd kiss you. I'd rather kiss you than die. Like it's a big compliment. Shows would milk that for a long time, and Avatar's like, no, this is a story about people going on a rad adventure, and these two characters are going to have a crush on each other, but that's not really the point of this show. We just want them to have a nice crush on each other and have that not be a source of huge conflict. So there you go. We'll we'll smooch and we'll call it good for now. And then we get that great moment at the end. How did you guys get out? Just like the legend says, we let love lead the way. Really? We let huge ferocious beasts lead our way. like three seconds of shot where op and momo just stare at each other dead in the eye and you're like what 
And what? Momo's chattering away. Momo's saying something. Yeah, yeah. They, they linger on it. They, they spend a good amount of episode time having these two animals talk to each other. It's fascinating. Over in Zuko and Iroh Town, we start off the episode for them with some fun comic relief. They're, they're really a hilarious duo with Iroh as the, the funny man and Zuko as the straight man. Uncle. What are you doing? You're looking at the rare white dragon bush. Its leaves make a tea so delicious it's heartbreaking. That, or it's the white jade bush, which is poisonous. We need food, not tea. I'm going fishing. Hmm, delectable tea or deadly poison? For a moment, I thought I wanted him to spend the whole episode pondering in front of this flower. Then when we returned to him, he was fully poisoned, and I thought, nope, this is right. This is what I actually wanted. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a moral debate that needs... It has an answer, basically. <laughs> it was poison. He finds these other berries that could be the cure or could make things worse. And th then they have the discussion that you mentioned in our first half, where they say, we have to go somewhere to get Uncle Iroh treated, otherwise his throat's going to close up and he's going to die. And they um, have to cover their tracks with some fake names. So where are you traveling from? Yes, we're travelers. Do you have names? Uh, names? Of course we have names. I'm Lee. And this is my uncle, uh, Mushi. Yes, my nephew was named after his father, so we just call him Junior. I, I like that this Zuko Iroh adventure starts small scale. We're not, like, in Omashu yet. We're just, like, on the outskirts talking to two people and trying to convince two people that we are to be trusted and we are safe and good. And it kind of works. The thing is, though, that Zuko doesn't realize until she tells him that the younger girl has a lot in common with him. And a lot of times, the other people in the world that have bad lives and un have been hurt by the Fire Nation were hurt in the almost literally the same ways that he was. <laughs> Quite literally, in fact. It's helpful for their cover because that means that people will usually expect that they're victims of a Fire Nation attack rather than Fire Nation natives. And the daughter tries to bond with Zuko because she suffered at the hands of the Fire Nation. Her father was killed by their soldiers. Zuko, of course, makes everything about his own dad and his own dad problems. When I was a little girl... The Fire Nation raided our farming village. All the men were taken away. That was the last time I saw my father. I haven't seen my father in many years. Oh, is he fighting in the war? Yeah. She then shows him her scar on her leg. And we see him react, starting to think about the physical consequences of the wrath of the fire nation. I think this, I think this plot is setting us up for Zuko's face turn that will probably happen in this season, because it seems like his angle on this, this overarching thesis we have about essentially having to claim responsibility before you feel ready for it. In the context of Zuko, it seems like 
What's resting on his shoulders is the future of the Fire Nation and its legacy, and the decision about whether or not he's going to try to re-enter on his father's terms and try to become a Fire Lord much in the same vein as Sozin and Ozai, or if he's going to try and regain control of the Fire Nation and make it something more benevolent, having learned from the people that he comes across, seeing the harm that's been done to them and realizing that war is not the answer. And I really appreciate this episode because it's seeding that, but then at the end, in the final moment, it shows that Zuko's not ready to be the good guy yet. He's starting to think about it, but he's rejecting it. Because as as they're parting with these people, he... Steals their bird horse. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and she watches him out the door. My heart, my heart hurt a lot. Because cause he's, like, he's ingratiating himself with her and her mom. And, and, like, Iroh is charming and affable and likes food and tea and enjoys their roasted duck or whatever. And it's like, oh, maybe there are good people in this world. That is what she is starting to think from this. And then, nope, people will still steal from you. They don't care. They have their own goals. Like, she almost, in a way, gets her own growing up arc in this little microcosm. She's also clearly desperate for somebody to understand her. More than her thinking that he's a good person, she sees that he's been hurt and just wants to connect with him and bond over the fact that they've both been hurt deeply by the Fire Nation. And so it, it's tragic because she gives so much to try to feel some kind of connection with Zuko, and then he, he fully rejects it, probably because he starts to feel it. And that, to him, is frightening. Zuko also sees this as an opportunity to maybe start trusting people, but after last week's encounter with Azula, he is still struggling with that. And I really like your point about him considering what it would be like to be a benevolent fire lord but i think what is actually going to turn around with his arc is maybe the idea of there being a fire lord like maybe government under a single person isn't the best idea and i don't mean that in like the jokey maybe the show gets really political way i more just mean like the whole he knows the whole system is messed up it's not like he's going to try and fix the system he just knows it's it's flawed and that's that is like what a lot of the later half of the show is about is people being like, well, us as young people, how can we fix things instead of just like running from things? So, yeah, I think that stuff is, is fantastic to, to see from Zuko. And, and like, I don't know, I think he's getting kind of cute now that his hair is growing in. I like short haired Zuko a lot. Um, mostly because I like short haired folks. And it's yeah, it's great. Like we said, to see him interacting with earthbending or culture and and all those people and iroh continues to be the charming most charming old man in the whole world i think that about covers the main content of this episode right i don't think there's any single moment that we've overlooked at all i don't think yeah i think you're right magellan yeah it's just sort of everything uh, wait wraps up nice they get to omashu and Ugh. Boomy has a whole feast ready for them and like teaches Aang the gist of earthbending in one day. And it's like, wow, that was easy. Whew. All right, season over, huh? I mean, th- the joke we're doing is what Sokka does. 
The journey was long and annoying, but now you get to see what it's really about. The destination. I present to you the Earth Kingdom city of Om... Oh no. It is already occupied by the Fire Nation. That is a touch I liked. Bye-bye. Whoopsie. See you next week. Like, we didn't see, like, oh, man, the tanks are rolling up on Omashu. That's scary in its own right. We saw that it already happened. Yeah. And the fight has and been We haven't lost. been gone very long. No. This, I mean, this happened as soon as they left. Because, as we learned in the Warriors of Kyoshi, everywhere Aang goes gets destroyed. Right. So... Uh, I believe next week we're going back to we're going 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 back back to Omashu, you know, kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. That's such, that's such an exciting way to end an episode. Yeah, yes. To confirm, episode three is returned to Omashu. Great, good to know. And well, they're gonna, we're gonna like see way more of Omashu and the culture, and that's a city that, like we were saying earlier, like there's a lot to see besides what we already saw with Boomy and the shoots and all that stuff. It's it's a pretty big city. Um, but let's get there first. Yes, let's um, do it. I'm going to read you some trivia, Magellan. Do that. This episode's Avatar Wiki article was referenced in On Being's Love is Brightest in the Dark by Trent Gillis in which a portion of the page's synopsis section is used to describe the scene of Ang and Katara discovering the tomb and its story. On Being is a radio show where it's like about it's about being. It's about like stories of life and people and love and all of the stuff that makes people human. And Love is Brightest in the Dark is a short piece by this guy where he talks about uh, how he got into Avatar with his kids. And he was like, this is a dumb kids show. And then discovered by watching this episode, The Cave of Two Lovers, that it has like really adult nuanced things to say about like romance and how people fall in love. And relating that back to like civil rights in a big way. It's pretty good. I, I think I like found an article transcription of it. I wasn't able to find the original audio version. But uh, that was a fun. And it's cool that somebody on the wiki was like, hey, look, we got a shout out. Let's put that in the show notes this week. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I will find it for you. Chong's belief of focusing less on the destination of a journey and more on the journey itself is similar to the Taoism belief that the path is the destination. Right. It's also similar to that Aerosmith song. Where he goes, life's a journey, not a destination. Steven Tyler was actually a noted Taoist. It was, uh, yeah. it was pretty significant in his later life. Uh, the song that is played during the story of the two lovers is called The Avatar's Love. This is the one I was thinking of. This is, if you've listened to the podcast uh, Avatar The Last Chatspender, when they do their theme song, and it segues into Magellan saying hello and welcome, the second half of that song is The Avatar's Love. Oh. Part where it's like, dun, 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 dun. it's a nice little tune. I would use it in a podcast theme song if I were me. Alan and Magellan, please be on our show. The story of the two lovers is similar to that of Romeo and Juliet. Here's a fun, uh, picky one. The rash on Ira's left leg from the jade plant is similar to the burn that Song showed Zuko. <laughs> Just like, hey, we drew the similar thing on uh, both. Uh, very pedantic wiki writers. This is the first episode in which badger moles appear, which is very ominous and threatening. <laughs> When Aang and Katara enter Oma and Shu's tomb, the pictures that tell their story are a reference to Egyptian hieroglyphics. Sure. And a non-canonical sequel to this episode was released as the book Love Potion 8 in 2008. I also looked into this. It's like one of those, like, baby's first book. 
kind of things, or it's like a very like elementary school level no- short novel. Uh, and it's just kind of it's it's like takes place in season three, so don't actually like read about it, but it's them coming back to the cave and being like, huh, we've grown since then, which is pretty cool. And then the last piece of trivia is pretty much it's referencing something that we haven't seen yet, so I'm not going to talk about it. And that is it for the trivia for the Cave of Two Lovers next week on Avatar, the last Chatsbender. Turned into Tom from Toonami there for a second. We should do a podcast that's just about anything that was on Toonami. <laughs> An anime podcast? Yeah, but like the the Toonami dubs specifically. Yeah, some of those dubs are very good. We can some just, of them we can just dig good. deep into Code Lyoko and Cyborg 009. Oh, Cyborg 009 was lit! It's so, it's so good. good. Oh, dude. Do you want to get into Cyborg 009 yes, like as adults? Dude, I do. All right, sounds good. <laughs> let's let's do this off so air. Much. Oh my god! Yes, dude, absolutely. Book two, episode three, Return to Omashu says the kids return to Omashu. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that Aang can learn earthbending from King Boomy. But when they get there, they are shocked to find the city is now in Fire Nation hands. Despite the danger, Aang enters Omashu in search of King Boomy. The next one is book two, episode four, The Swamp. When the kids end up in a mysterious and strange swamp, their fears are exposed, and Aang learns about being, quote, connected to the earth from an unlikely teacher. Oh, their fears. It's a classic fears come to life episode. Right, it's the kind of episode that it takes at least a season before you can really do it and do it justice, like with characters and all that stuff. Uh Hmm, there's stuff from this episode that I remember liking. I think it's a good one. We'll talk about it next week. It's <laughs> I'm kind of excited. And then, yeah, Return to Omashu is fantastic. So, yeah. Lots of hype. Basically, there are, like, no episodes of, of book two that I'm not kind of excited for. There's no, like, whatever, like, the Cave of Two Lovers is fine. Like, this one's great. All of them are great. It's the best season. Hashtag best season of Avatar. Tag it. Twitter. Do it. And follow us there while you're at it. It's at ChatsPod, spelled C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D. And if you want to send us an email, you can do that over at ChatsPod at gmail.com. We love receiving your emails. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and you should, because that would make us very happy. Wouldn't it, Magellan? It would make us so good feeling. My heart would swell ten sizes larger than it is right now. And it's very, I have a very big heart. Uh, just for just for just for chats and then i think that it covers how you can interact with the show we love your feedback though and we have a whole segment devoted to it for a reason you cannot find me on twitter but you can listen to me on another podcast that'll be releasing a new episode soon it's called fireside friends it is found wherever you listen to podcasts it's me and a couple of other friends talking about pop culture and nerd stuff with a unique perspective in that we are all uh not we're not like the typical like nerdy dudes like <laughs> i would say that i would say that kind of sums it up um and that can be like i said that's where that is and we're talking about anime this week we have a new episode coming out very exciting I'm pretty excited for it yes 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 uh magellan what about you you can find me on twitter and communicate with me through twitter at just a fluke that's j-u-s-t-a-p-f-l-u-k-e send me a message follow me ask me to follow you it'll be a great time you can also listen to me on another podcast called Adulthood. 
It is a 12-year podcast project that will chronicle my adult, my young adult life, in which every week I watch 15 seconds of the movie Boyhood, and then, you know, make a show about stuff. It's a good time. Thank you for listening to The Last Chatspender. Yip, yip.